If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes, but let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. The bank at Knoll had been robbed. There was no activated alarm. It's a potentially an inside job. The bank president was missing, along with about $83,000. He could either be the victim or involved in the theft of the money. I started to wish that he did rob the bank. Any scenario that allows him to be alive. A body surfaced on the Grand Lake. We've had murders in this area before, but nothing on this magnitude. And it's like, is this for real? On the duct tape were three fingerprints. That was a significant development. Two brothers were bragging about stealing a large amount of money. He really just wanted to make his brother proud. A lot more loyalty there than any other two men. Cold-blooded killers. Noah, Missouri is a beautiful area in southwest Missouri. We're kind of in the middle of, of nowhere, but people are, are genuine and they're friendly. It's that typical small town feel that everybody knows everyone. So it's shocking what happened back in the fall of 1989. I was notified through our dispatcher and the sheriff's department that the bank at Knoll had been robbed. The bank employees came to work and found the bank was already open and there was money missing. When I arrived at the bank, it was obvious that things were in disarray. Inside the vault area was kind of a mess. The money had been taken. It's just protocol that if it's an FDIC bank, the FBI is going to become involved. I was at home, had a call about 8 o'clock in the morning from State Bank of Knoll. 
And when I arrived at the bank, the local authorities were there, and that's when I assumed control of the crime scene. The examination of the bank premises quickly revealed the fact that there was no forced entry. There was no activated alarm. There was an alarm system with an override on it. If you knew the right code, you could override that alarm system. Possibly it was an inside job. The bank vault had certainly been ransacked. We know that on that particular day, they always got a shipment of money in, cash checks from the local poultry processing plant. That money was missing. They'd taken everything. The amount of the loss was about 83000 including $34,100 bills. $4,000 was in coins, over 300 pounds worth of coins. It required more than one person. Bank robbers don't typically take coins. That's what made this particular crime very unique. We then set about examining the interior of the bank. The uh, camera setup had been altered camera, the one and only camera, had been spray-painted. The lens had been turned backwards to face the corner. We also found some spent cartridges on the floor. The camera had been shot twice. Two shots of a 45 caliber. It was strange that someone would go to that effort to include firing two shots into it. It was an act of bravado. That indicated to me that this was amateurs. The examination of the bank revealed very little evidence of what happened. The camera was of no value. The two spent cases on the bank floor were of some value. Beyond that, very little existed. Along about that time, most bank employees were arriving, including the vice president and the tellers. There were about six employees. There was one very noticeable person that was unaccounted for. The bank president, Dan Short, was missing. We've tried to reach Dan by phone, and no one can contact him. His bank has been broken into. His whereabouts are unaccounted for. And naturally, Mr. Short would have had the keys to the bank. It was essential that we find Dan Short. In conversation with the bank vice president, we learned that Dan Short was separated from his wife. Uh, he lived alone in a remote area in Arkansas. When we got to Mr. Short's house, I walk in, he's not there. The house does not look like it's in disarray. We don't see any sign that anything's happened to him. We had found nothing in his house to indicate his whereabouts. He drove a little red medium-sized pickup and that pickup was gone. At this time, we had Arkansas and Missouri State Troopers who were responding to find Mr. Short's truck and hopefully to find Mr. Short. We began to interview all of Dan Short's associates, friends, even relatives, to determine if the bank president was involved, was he simply missing, did he run away, did he abscond? 
Dan Short had a good reputation in the community. He was a likable guy. He was a person that was just very popular. The FBI wanted lots of background information about my dad. All that they said to me at that time was that the bank had been robbed and that my father was missing. Things that you have to consider if it's a potentially an inside job. What is their family situation? Were there troubles at home? Were there troubles at work? In the time that I lived with my dad in 88, 89, he did seem to come home with more stress on his shoulders from his business problems. I remember him having a lot more headaches and being a lot more fatigued. Maybe the last two years that he was banking in Knoll, just mentally and emotionally, you could see it in his eyes. The FDIC had found some things in the State Bank of Knoll in the operations. They were out of compliance. You don't want the feds to come in and tell you that they're not happy with you. They started coming to the State Bank of Knoll more often, which put more of a burden on Dan Short to comply with what they wanted done. There's no scenario that I could think of that would be bad enough that he would ever break the law and, and more importantly, that he would ever leave my brother and I. Just wouldn't happen. Word spread very quickly in a community like this. You didn't have to put it on the radio or newspaper. It was uh, word of mouth. Later that day, we get a call that a truck has been found and they think it belongs to Mr. Short. We respond there. McDonald County 5, McDonald County, I have the vehicle on top of Ter Saratoga Hill, Sibley Barnes. Okay, secure it, don't let anybody near it. We ran the registration plate on the truck and the truck was registered to Mr. Dan Short. We found a lot of coins laying in the floorboard coins were in rollers, so that money was obviously from the bank. That led us to believe that the truck had been involved in hauling the bags of coins from the bank, at least to that location. The logical thing you do to leave your truck behind, switch to another vehicle, and make your getaway. Dan Short's missing, the bank's been robbed, and somebody had had the keys to the front door to get in. He could be the one who actually was involved in the theft of the money. We receive a call, a body floating in Grand Lake. Now we're dealing with a capital crime. Whoever the perpetrators were, this is a pretty heinous crime. On October 6, 1989, the State Bank of Knoll had been robbed, cleaned out during the night. The bank president, Dan Short, was missing. We found his truck left abandoned, and there were uh, quite a number of loose coins in the uh, bed of the truck. We're out looking everywhere for him. We don't know if he's involved in the theft or not. During the afternoon of the first day of investigation, we learned that earlier that morning, a neighbor of Dan Short reported to the Arkansas Police Department that she had seen an incident the night of the robbery.
around 2 a.m., she was awakened by a noise out front. She looked out her front window and saw two individuals on the ground wrestling. One got up, had his hands restrained behind him, tried to run around the corner of the house. The other individual tackled him, stopped him. And then a third individual arrived, and the two drug the first individual bound behind his back to a vehicle. According to the neighbor, the bound individual was Mr. Short. She saw only vaguely the suspects and the vehicle, but described it as a van, a two-colored brown van. Based on the information, we believe Dan Short was kidnapped from his home and he was forced to open up the safe. It became clear to us that Dan Short was involuntarily involved. The, the question is, where is Dan Short? That was our gravest concern, that harm has come to Mr. Short. The FBI began to look through his credit card accounts, telephone calls, anything that might indicate his whereabouts. The Sheriff's Department had a mounted posse, and we were just looking in an area along the highways and in the remote areas. We were trying to find Mr. Short and identify possible perpetrators. And we began to look for people in the area who were spending money that had no known capability of having that kind of money. People who had the potential of committing such a crime. Joe Sr. and Sheila Agoski got married in 65, and they settled down in rural Knoll, Missouri. They had their first son, Joe Jr., in 1965. Shannon followed in 1971, their second son. Their father worked for some oil company. They were a more wealthy family in the town. So throughout the 1970s, life for the Agofsky family is actually pretty good. Unfortunately, on March 8th in 1980, Joe Sr. was on a business trip to Mexico. The two-engine plane crashed. Their father died in that plane crash. They um, acquired some type of settlement. Sheila is given a large sum of money, and both boys are given money that is put into a trust that they can't access until they turn 21. According to reports, they each received in that settlement as much as $100,000. And in the meantime, Sheila Nagofsky's settlement allowed them to be some of the more wealthy children in old Missouri who were able to purchase things and kind of do what they wanted. Joe was 14 so practically a young man, and Shannon had just turned nine. Joe really became a father figure to Shannon, and this was something that bonded them very closely together. In 1981, I opened the first martial arts school in Knoll, Missouri. One of the first students that we had was Shannon Agofsky. He was nine years old. After his father passed away, Shannon became very confrontational, even aggressive. 
his cockiness, his bravado definitely surfaced. Shannon Nagoski was one of our star students. He was very confident and outgoing. Joe, on the other hand, was a pretty quiet guy. Joe was the strong, silent one who was leading the way. He was not the kind of person who would tell you what was on his mind. He definitely didn't like confrontation. He was more of a mechanic and liked to do mechanic work. Joe absolutely loved cars. He collected cars and liked to put them back together. In his early 20s, he had had a couple of those really nice sports cars. By the time that Joe is 23, he has already burned through all of the money that was given to him after his father's death. They went overboard on their spending. They weren't very wise on some of their choices. Shannon, who is 18 years old, has not been able to access his trust. Effectively, he was broke as well. So they turned to more insidious ways to try to finance their lifestyle. They got involved in running stolen guns across state lines. Joe was the one who instigated these activities, but I think that Shannon was more than willing to participate. He was kind of a daredevil. He liked the thrill. And most of all, he really just wanted to make Joe proud. These young men were used to having money and needed to find a way to acquire more money. So they devised a plan to acquire more wealth. During that first day of the investigation, a neighbor reported having seen Dan Short abducted from his residence by two perpetrators. Now, the theory is that most likely Dan Short had been taken to the bank and had been forced to assist them in gaining entry into the vault, but we still had to find Dan Short. We drove back roads, we looked vacant buildings, we did everything we could to find Dan Shore. We concentrated our search for four days just on trying to find where he might be. We developed no more information on a viable suspect and we had not found Dan Shore. We couldn't find him if he was alive or we couldn't find his body if he was dead. Days went by. I started to wish that the scenario was such that he did rob the bank and that he did take the money and that he did leave the country. You start to bargain with any scenario that allows him to be alive. October the 11th, five days after the bank robbery, we received a call from a couple that reported what they believed to be a body floating in Grand Lake. 
So you keep trying to get in shape and it keeps not working. I'm Lacey Green, a super trainer with body. That's B-O-D-I dot com. And I've got a story you have to hear. I have a client who came to me because she was really frustrated that every gym or trainer she tried made her feel bad because she was a beginner. She had tried it all and she just felt humiliated. And that's when we started working together and I took her through my three-week program called For Beginners Only. Once she realized that she wasn't the problem and that she just needed the right program, she started to get results. And now she's completely unstoppable and feeling so strong and confident. And I can do the same for you. On the Body app, subscribers lose five to 10 pounds consistently in their first month. And I bet you will too. In fact, CNN underscore just named Body best fitness app. And right now, Body has a special introductory offer. The next 500 new users who sign up for a year of Body save 72%. That's just 33 cents a day. All you have to do is go to body.com. That's B-O-D-I.com. Late nights at work taking a toll on your skin? Do you find yourself staring at those dark circles in the mirror? Well, it's time to meet your new best friend, Dark Circle Defense Balm from Lumen. Lumen is a line of brilliant men's skincare solutions crafted especially for men who want to look and feel their brightest. Whether you're a seasoned skincare pro or a total newbie, Lumen Skin has got you covered. Lumen's Dark Circle Defense Balm is a lightweight gel that absorbs seamlessly into your skin to brighten your under eyes and instantly plump dehydration lines. It's basically an espresso shot for your eyes. The best part? Lumen will let listeners of this podcast try the product out for free. Yes, you heard that right. Free. Head to lumenskin.com wondery and get your free trial of Dark Circle Defense and their other amazing products now. Say goodbye to tired-looking eyes and say hello to a new and refreshed you. Don't wait any longer. Your skin will thank you. That's lumenskin.com slash Wondery for your free trial. On October the 11th, five days after the robbery, abduction of Dan Short, a body was observed having surfaced just off the Cascan Bridge on the Grand Lake in Oklahoma. Upon arrival, we met with the reporting parties that discovered the body. They had actually uh, attached the body to their boat and towed the body into the uh, dock. And that's where we first came into contact with the body. With the recent disappearance of Dan Short in the neighboring county, it did become relevant to us to contact the FBI almost instantly. When we arrived, several people were already there, including Sheriff Arp of Delaware County, Oklahoma. We got the body out of the water and got it up on the dock. The body was in bad shape, but we did find the driver's license for Mr. Short on the body. At that point, it was obvious that that was the body of Dan Short. They had placed the body on the marina wharf. A wooden chair was attached to the body. He was wrapped in several different areas with gray duct tape. He was taped around the chest. He was taped at the ankle. The tape to the ankle remained intact, which was also taped to the chair and apparatus. The tape across the chest broke. Therefore, the body was unattached from the chair except for the ankle. Taped to the back of that chair was a concrete block. Taped to the bottom 
and to some extent to Dan Short, was an old-fashioned chain hoist. It was just uh, real apparent that these items were attached in an attempt to weight the body down. Somebody took uh, extreme measures to see that th this body wasn't discovered. We made a decision there at the scene to sever what I call an apparatus, a wooden chair, concrete block, and chain hoist from the body so that the body could be taken to the examiners for the autopsy. All that apparatus was flown back to the FBI laboratory, Washington, D.C., for examination. When we recovered Dan Short's body, it was big news. A lot of TV stations were calling and coming, uh, wanting the interviews. Authorities found the body of bank president Dan Short floating in a northwest Oklahoma lake. I remember it being dark in our house and turning, excuse me, turning on the news and splashed across the 10 o'clock news was the body removed from Grand Lake this afternoon is believed to be the body of the missing banker, Dan Short. And I just remember sitting on the couch <laughs> thinking, this isn't real, <laughs> this isn't real. And then the FBI walked through our front door. My mom had told me, if it's a phone call, it's good news. If they come in person, it's bad news. And I could tell from the look on their face that it was him. We've had murders in this area before, but nothing on this magnitude. The next day, the results came back from the medical examiner. There was no indication of a gunshot, knife wound, any other injury. So it's concluded that the cause of death was, in fact, drowning. The body had been in the water for some days, about five days, which was consistent with the number of days since the robbery and the abduction. The finding of the body of Dan Short changed the complexity of the investigation from a robbery with a missing banker now to the robbery and a murdered banker. Now we're dealing with a capital crime. The chair and the cinder block and um, chain pole had been shipped back to the FBI laboratory and was being carefully analyzed by fingerprint specialists. If we had fingerprints, they can perhaps lead us to who murdered Dan Short. During the afternoon of October the 11th, Dan Short's body was recovered in the lake, along with a wooden chair with a concrete block and a chain hoist. Back at the FBI laboratory, being carefully analyzed. There was no fingerprint of any quality. We didn't even develop a, a latent fingerprint. We had little or no forensic evidence at that point from the body or the chair apparatus. We're still at square one. 
a couple of days after we recovered Dan Short's body, the command post got a call from a lady named Shirley Butler. She reported seeing something possibly connected with Dan Short's murder. Shirley Butler reported that she had been driving to work around three o'clock in the morning. On the night of the robbery and murder, and observed when approaching Bukowskian Bridge, the activity on the bridge. She sees the brown van parked on the bridge, and it looked really suspicious. There was activity at the rear of the van and as she approached, the activity ceased and the vehicle was left. She didn't see any debris or any indication of anything left behind on the bridge. She described a two-colored brown van, which matched the van described by the neighbor of Dan Short as involved in the abduction. Uh, of course, Mr. Short's body was found floating just to the side of the Cowskin Bridge, what she saw was probably the killing of Dan Short. Dan Short appeared to have been thrown off the bridge into the water where he subsequently drowned and died. Whoever the perpetrators were, this is a heinous crime. The photo was released of the chair to the news media. The authorities were looking for, for help in any way they could find it, uh, any clues. During the next few days of the investigation, we identified numerous possible suspects, known bank robbers, convicted bank robbers, who all had the capability of committing such a crime. We conducted polygraph examinations, in-depth interviews, one by one, those were eliminated. In a case like this, we had a tip line set up. We were still looking for clues. Sometimes you get the one that helps solve the case. We were getting hundreds of calls, but there was a anonymous phone call about the Nagoski brothers. The caller claimed that two brothers in Noel Joe and Shannon Nagowski were bragging about stealing a large amount of coins in a recent crime. The Nagowski brothers had never been in any trouble with the law. They were local kids. They grew up here. We went out to where uh, they lived, and they were brought in and, of course, was interviewed by the FBI. Joe was in his early 20s. Shannon was 18 years old. Joe, the older of the two, was quieter, certainly more reserved. Shannon, on the other hand, seemed to be very cocky, very assured of himself. Both Agafka brothers were cooperative, both denied any involvement or knowledge of the bank robbery and murder of Dan Short. Joe's alibi was that he was in Joplin, Missouri with his girlfriend on the night of the abduction and murder and could therefore had no part in it. Shannon stated he was at home uh, with his mother. Both appeared to be telling the truth. There was no evidence 
linking them to anything. So we had to let them go. At that point, there's still no other suspects developed. No other evidence had developed on any other person. In October of 89, I lived on Grand Lake, just southwest of Kaskim Bridge. It was a big story that uh, they had found Dan Short. Nothing like that ever happens around here. A few days after they had found the body, I take the kids fishing. My son and I were walking the bank and we come up on this piece of tape. There was a uh, piece of duct tape and I had a stick and I pick it up and I look at it and I do see three fingerprints on it. Called the authorities and the FBI showed up. We took custody of the duct tape that was recovered from the shoreline in the vicinity of the uh, Cowskin Bridge. We observed three rusty, greasy residue fingerprints. Very evident, full prints. Liddell and I look at each other and our eyes get big and it's like, is this for real? I turned to Agent Jim Edwards and I said, Jimmy, this is too good to be true. On October 13th, some duct tape was recovered by an individual who lived on the lake near where Dan Short's body surfaced. On the duct tape were three fingerprints. At that point, we had no idea if we could prove that tape came from the chair Dan Short's body was attached to, but it was a major development. We shipped the tape with the fingerprints back to uh, the FBI laboratory to the same group of examiners who were looking at the chair. We had no idea at that point whose fingerprints those were, but they were of no value unless that tape was connected to the apparatus tape. When you tear a piece of duct tape, you're gonna have two ends that obviously go back together perfectly. After analysis of all the pieces, we received word that the tape found by Rowdy Foreman was matched to uh, the tape that remained on the chair. That was a significant development. Our task at that point was to find the suspect who left those fingerprints on the tape. 1989, we did have a fingerprint database, but the fingerprints were not contained within the FBI database. So we knew we we're dealing most likely with a non-felon, a non-criminal record suspect, so to speak, which matched with the original theory that this was amateurs. We didn't have the names of individuals to focus on, but we were hoping to generate potential leads. During the investigation, we had disseminated the picture of the chair through print and TV media. After several months of the investigation, we received a report from an individual in McDonald County named Wayne Butain. Wayne came in voluntarily and said that he believed that chain horse belonged to him. In interviewing Wayne Butain, he described 
the chain horse to include certain identifying marks on it and broken parts. Wayne viewed pictures of it and uh, made a positive identification of the chain horse. Wayne said he had left that chain horse at the residence in Noel that he was renting. He had moved out shortly before the bank robbery. After two or three days from moving, he went back to retrieve his chain horse and found it was gone. That property was owned by Sheila Lugowski and her son, Shannon Lugowski. The name Lugowski came up again. So now we're back to the Agoskis who we had previously interviewed. Both were interviewed a second time. Both denied any involvement yet again. So we looked again at the Agoski brothers' alibis. Joe Agoski, his alibi was is that he was with his uh, girlfriend in Joplin the night of the crime. However, based on a review of phone records that were available, revealed that he wasn't, he was at his residence in Knoll. So that pretty much discredited his alibi. The question loomed, why would these two brothers have anything to do with the robbery of the State Bank of Knoll or the killing of Dan Short? From several people in McDonald County, it was reported that Shannon bragged that he was the richest 18-year-old in McDonald County. They had had money, and then all of a sudden, they don't got it. People get used to having money. The Agowski brothers were short cash. So therefore, you would wonder, is money the motive? The financial aspect became uh, a key part of the investigation. History has it, and tradition is, that bank robbers don't take money to hide and to put in a fruit jar. They spend it. Through interviews and investigation, we determined that Joe Agoski was spending a large amount of money. Since October the 6th, Joe had spent about $24,000 in cash, almost all $100 bills, when he had no known source of income. The money taken from the bank included $34,100 bills. Very suspicious. At that point, we felt that it would be extremely prudent to get the fingerprints of both Shannon and Joseph Agoski for comparison to the fingerprints that were found on the tape. I went to Joe, uh, asked if he would voluntarily have his fingerprints taken, and he voluntarily did. Joe Agoski's fingerprints sent back to uh, the FBI laboratory. Shannon, on the other hand, was very elusive and would not provide his fingerprints. As a FBI agent, we had no authority to uh, force him. It's either voluntarily or court order. There was no hard evidence linking them to anything at that point. So we couldn't get a court order. A few days later, I received a call from the fingerprint examiner who notified me that the fingerprints of Joe were almost identical to those on the duct tape, but were not identical. He also told me that siblings often have very similar fingerprint patterns. More than likely, 
the fingerprints could belong to a relative of Joseph Agoski. So we now need to go get Shannon Agoski's fingerprints. It's March of 1990, five months after the robbery of the State Bank of Knoll and the killing of Dan Short. We had fingerprints. The fingerprint analyst discovered striking similarities between Joseph Agoski's fingerprints and those on the tape that was found by Rowdy Foreman. Because of those similarities, the fingerprints maybe belonged to a relative of Joseph Agoski. With the fingerprints of Joe Agoski, an almost match. The federal grand jury issued a subpoena to obtain Shannon's fingerprints involuntarily. Shannon Agoski's fingerprints were sent back to the FBI laboratory for analysis. Shannon's uh, fingerprints were identified on the tape. And that obviously is a very crucial part of the evidence, the fingerprints of Shannon Agoski, which really is the, the, the smoking gun in this case. The Agoskis were indicted by a federal grand jury for conspiracy, for use of a firearm in the commission of a felony, and aggravated bank robbery. And under the federal bank robbery statute, the death of a bank president meant they could receive the death penalty. The investigation revealed that Shannon was talking about moving to South America. So that led us to move expeditiously to prevent them from fleeing. Joe Agoski had a job at a chicken hatchery. Myself and another agent traveled to his workplace, called him out to the lobby and told him he was under arrest. Joe went willingly. Shannon was arrested in Rogers, Arkansas, and was brought back to Springfield in federal custody to await trial. After the Agoski brothers were arrested and behind bars, people could rest at night a little bit better, knowing that someone has been charged with this crime. Joe and Shannon Nagoski never made a confession, either written or oral confession, to any law enforcement that they actually committed these crimes. We all were able to put these pieces of evidence all together to determine what actually happened. Bank records show that Joe Agoski rented a safe deposit box at the State Bank of Knoll not long before the crime. The suspects knew Dan Short. They knew where he lived. This was very well thought out, what transpired on the night of October 6th of 1989. The picture that we were able to obtain is that Dan Short, president of the State Bank of Knoll, was kidnapped by Shannon and Joe Agoski from his residence near Sulphur Springs, Arkansas. He was forcibly taken to the bank in uh, Knoll, Missouri. They took his truck so they could park it out there in front of the bank and people would think that he was in there working. 
At that point, they used Dan Short to acquire access to the bank. Dan Short was forced to open up the bank vault from which over $8,000 was taken. They abandoned Dan Short's truck west of Knoll. Then Joe and Shan Nagoski drove across the state line into Oklahoma, where they tied Mr. Short to a chair with a chain hoist and a cinder block and threw him over the railing of Kowskin Bridge. Neither of the Gowski brothers ever incriminated the other one or himself. Never admitted a thing. Blood brothers. A lot more loyalty there than any other two men. Collective decision is made that the Gowski brothers would be tried federally in the state of Missouri. The physical evidence from the fingerprints on the tape was very crucial evidence in the federal trial. Joe and Shannon Nagoski were found guilty of the federal charges, conspiracy, aggravated bank robbery, and use of a firearm in the commission of a felony. They were both sentenced to life in prison, plus five years. When the verdict was reached in the federal trial, I was there. It was an amazing feeling because for the first time, um, I knew justice was beginning to be served for the death of my father. Knowing that he was tossed off of that bridge, still alive, to drown in that lake without the ability to even move in that chair tragic event. When I hear the words Agoski brothers, I think of cold-blooded killers. The most heinous crime that I ever reported upon. We had a bench built in the cemetery where my dad is buried to give our family a place to remember him. And the quote reads, love is how you stay alive even after you're gone. And that death ends life, it does not end a relationship. There will be situations, occasions, narrow escapes, all of those cool things that spontaneously happen in life and my boys and I have adopted that, and we've called them Grandpa Dan moments. Meaning that he's looking down and lending a hand for the big and the small stuff as often as he can. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. 
As an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.